You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast. I have Blake Harris, author of Console Wars and author of a new book called The History of the Future, which I was telling him I literally uh, picked up off the shelf a week ago at a Barnes & Noble. So uh, it's really great to talk to you, Blake. Thanks for coming. Thanks so much for having me, Richard. I look forward to the conversation. Yeah, so tell listeners right off the bat, um, what was uh, Console Wars about? And then let's talk about the history of the future. Sure. So Console Wars was a behind-the-scenes business battle story between Sega and Nintendo from the early 90s. And for me, I grew up, you know, I'm born in 1982, so I grew up in the 80s and 90s. And for me, it was basically just like a behind-the-scenes look at my childhood and uh, basically trying to understand um, why so many of the decisions that were made were made. And uh, I remember finishing that book and telling my agent that I didn't think I would ever write a book as good as Console Wars. And um, mostly that was because I thought I'd never find a story with you know, such larger-than-life characters, an intersection of technology, uh, culture, pop culture, um, entertainment. And then, uh, lo and behold, I found this story. And I guess it remains to be seen whether it'll have a similar um, impact as Sega Nintendo. But sure, it sure is uh, one heck of a story I got to tell. Yeah, I was born in 75, so I was there with Atari and Sega and all that stuff was later. ColecoVision. Yeah. So it was a great book and uh, brought back a lot of memories for me, too. Thank you. Yeah, so... Um, um, well, one what, thing what, I'll, I'll mention, because you, you said you were at Barnes & Noble, and that's sort of how my journey into all of this began, which was um, back, you know, I spent my entire 20s trading commodities for Brazilian clients. I was buying and selling things like sugar and coffee and soybeans, and I was fantasizing about becoming a writer one day. Um, and then before I ever wrote Console Wars, I actually wanted to just read a book like Council Wars. So I went to a Barnes and Noble. I went to this gigantic Barnes and Noble on 86th Street here in, in New York. And I was thinking that I would uh, just find such a book in the video game history section, but there turned out not to be such a section. You know, I figured it might be near the film history or music history section, but there was nothing like that. And uh, the woman at the information desk told me that they didn't have a single book in the entire store about uh, video games or the business of video games, the history of video games. So. I'm glad now what it is like eight years later to have uh, helped change that in some small way that you were able to pick up a copy of this new book there. And I'm sure Console Wars is there as well. So what, how did you make the transition to uh, writing Console Wars in the first place? How did you get to talk to the people involved to do the research? Um, it was hard because it's a good question because I had no existing credits. I had no bylines at publications, uh, had no contacts. And so what was actually very instrumental early on was a website that I often made fun of and still sometimes make fun of, which was LinkedIn. Uh, you know, I used to joke it was uh, Facebook for work, which is not an original joke, but um, yep, I looked, true. I basically just typed in, yeah, I typed in Sega and Nintendo. And, uh, you know, I ended up finding hundreds of people who worked there during the time period I was interested in. And then it was just a numbers game. I reached out to all of them. I think about like 10% of them responded to me and, those aren't the highest odds, but at least it was, you know, 20 to 30 people I hadn't been in touch with otherwise. And then little by little, I uh, grew, I built a network of people. And I think the one thing that really helped me in that case, um, aside from hopefully my wooden personality, um, was was that for, the, for so many of the people who worked at Sega and Nintendo during those glory years, like let's say 1985 to 1995, um, so many of them were very eager to tell me their stories. Like they, they, they all considered it such an exciting time in their own lives. And so um, I think that's you know, a lesson I took away from that as a writer is uh, that it's 
a lot more fun and a lot easier to tell stories about periods of people's lives that they're excited to talk to you about, um, which is probably a decent segue into talking about this period of VR and this time at Oculus. Well, we'll get to that in a second, but um, what was it like when you approached people for console wars first? Um, you know, did certain people say, oh, I'll talk to you when you get more interviews or, you know, when it's a success, then I'll talk to you, but not right now. Yeah, people did say that. And I and, and the good thing was, I totally understood it. If I were them, I could understand being skeptical of spending time talking to a person who at, at that point seemed unlikely to actually finish this product or to do it in a way that was successful. But I and I always remember one of the first things that Tom Kalinske told me, you know, Tom Kalinske was the president of Sega of America from 1990-96. He's the protagonist of the book. He takes Sega from 5% of the market to 55% of the market. And I remember one of the first times I talked to him, he kind of asked me, like, sincerely, like, do you think anyone's going to care about this story? Um, and I was like, yes, Tom, I think a lot of people are going to care. It's very fascinating. And I think if it's told in an accessible way, a lot of people will care. And then, yeah, people love like gaming. I mean, so, you know, yeah. I mean, can you, um, do you know how many books, how many have sold of it? You haven't asked Yeah, me? so I, I don't know like, the exact figure, but I know that we passed 100,000 worldwide like a year or two ago. Um, which is humbling and, and amazing. And I think one of the most amazing parts to me is that, um, you know, I, I, after I had worked on the book for about a year, um, I put together a book proposal um, to try to find a publisher. And during that year, I had also um, had a meeting with Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg, and they agreed to write the forward to the book. And they also um, wanted to make a movie out of the book, which is now going to be a TV show. Um, and then also they were going to produce a documentary and then Scott Rudin was also producing it. So it was like this dream team package of which I was the most uninteresting person in this, but still, um, you know, this great package around this great corporate rival between Sega and Nintendo. And I remember that the book proposal went out to 25 different book publishers and 22 of them passed. And the main reason that they said was that video game books don't sell. And I remember just being surprised because the whole reason. Yeah, I wrote and no one plays video games many. either, please. <laughs> yeah. And, then, and I think that's something that I've really come across a lot in the past six or seven years that I've been reporting on the video game industry is just this perception, this, this negative perception of gamers that they don't, that they have certain negative behaviors, that they don't read, that they don't watch documentaries. And my experience has been completely the opposite of that. Uh, you know, so, of course, some gamers don't read. Of course, some gamers are like the stereotypical live in their basement antisocial people but that's not the majority of it and the majority of the gamers that i have spoken to and interviewed are really curious people who want to know more about this industry that they love and i'm fortunate to be a beneficiary of that reality um which publishers seem to not really um believe at the time yeah like when i tell my kids you know i was on the internet when it was just text that scrolled across the screen <laughs> through a modem at like 300 baud and there were no graphics and you know, the first games I played were just like, you know, asterisks and slashes for the right. walls of a dungeon. And, and they're like amazed, you know, they can't believe it. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's, um, I, I, I know that you're, I guess, seven years older than me, but there definitely has to be something that is forever going to bond us. I think one, just the fact that you and I know what the sound of a modem is. And I assume most millennials mm -hmm. or younger people don't even know what that is. Or I remember playing King's Quest and that was like, a breakthrough in graphics compared to Zork and other text adventures. So, you know, playing the fact that that's how we first understood games, I think that that just makes a difference. Um, just, or, or, you know, gives us some commonality. Um, but, but I'm sure that like oh, yeah. myself, you're very happy about how far things have progressed since then. Yeah, it's amazing. I remember, you know, we had an Atari, I think 800 or 1200, whatever it was. And my first computer was a Commodore 64, which had like, literally 64 kilobytes of memory or something, not even a megabyte. Right. And uh, yeah, it's just crazy. And then, you know, I used like a 300 baud modem and then 1200 baud modem came out and that was really fast. You couldn't read that fast. It would display the text too fast for you, you know? And uh, I remember yeah. I played a game called uh, British Legends. I think it was 88 or 89. It was a multiplayer game online. And I think that was like, it must've been one of the first ones, but uh, I went to a convention and, met up with some of the players and it was really cool. I have a lot of memories of that stuff. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. What, one other thing that I've observed over the past couple of years and that I think is kind of nice is uh, that, uh, you know, I, I've had the 
fortune of speaking at, at a bunch of like high schools and colleges. So, you know, basically speaking to people who are 10, 15, 20 years younger than me and, 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 and a significant portion of the people, at least the people who attend these things. So I don't know what fraction that really is, but, but, but there are, but there are people who are much younger than us who really enjoy playing those old NES games and super Nintendo and Genesis games. Um, not, you know, I think that's pretty cool because, I don't play Atari games, you know, I did when I was a kid, but like, I think there is something about that era that makes it like a golden era of gaming, the NES, the 8-bit and the 16-bit era that is making it withstand the test of time. Um, and I just thought that was, that was pretty cool. Yeah, like when Pixels came out, you know, and they had all the old games, like that movie was awesome, you know, and yeah, I think there's a ton of nostalgia for people and that's what's, maybe that's what's bringing yeah. older people back to games or into games, you know? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I definitely, um, Sort of was very fortunate with the timing of my book um, due to the nostalgia of it all and the fact that a lot of us who grew up during that time now have some disposable income or now have kids that we want to talk, talk, show them the, the battles that we were on the front lines of as console warriors as kids. Um, and, and, I, and I think it's nice to see that these companies are actually um, leaning into that. You know, for a while, Nintendo basically treated their back library like this thing that, you know, was the past and they were focused on the future. But then with the past few consoles, with the Wii and the Wii U, they've had virtual consoles, and now they have their subscription model, and there's a lot of ways to play their old games, um, which I think is, is nice, because a lot of those games are still fun. Yeah, and now my son, you know, he's he's 11, and he plays, like, Fortnite and Overwatch, and, you know, he's been through, like, Terraria and Roblox, and, you know, I still, I'll play with him sometimes, and, you know, it, it's fun, like, I get to enjoying my youth and my wife teases me that I'm a kid when I do that and I'm still playing games, you know? Cool. <laughs> and how do you compare it to him? Is is he better than you at Fortnite and those other Battle Royale games? Oh, please. You see, it, it, it's like I've never played before. I, I remember um, <laughs> years ago, I was with a friend of mine. We were playing StarCraft a lot. This is the original StarCraft. And um, we played this like 12-year-old kid, this like Korean kid or something. And he was so good. It, it was like we had never played the game before. It was just ridiculous yeah. how good he was. It was it wasn't even fun. He just destroyed us, you know. So the kids today are amazing at stuff. I mean, like now yeah. what we didn't have is you know he'll have a special mouse with like 50 buttons on it, and you can key bind all the commands. Right. And um, yeah, you know he has like a, a special mouse pad that moves and scrolls smoothly, and his keyboard right. with colored keys and a, a chair and headphones and. I mean, we had like nothing, you know, and it's amazing what the stuff they have today. Yeah, no, it really is. Yeah, anyway, I'm sorry to take you off track, but uh, that's why no, I, just no, love, I love, you know, I love console about. wars, and I'm excited for the new one. I I just read through the foreword, so let's talk about that a little bit. Um, yeah, I saw that I you got Ernest Klein, who did Ready Player One, to do the foreword, which is awesome. So maybe tell the story about how that happens. Um, sure. So I think there's two parts to it. Um, one is that. Uh, Ernie Klein wrote Ready Player One. I think it came out in 2011. It came out. It came out a few years before Console Wars. And um, it, uh, like a lot of people that I ended up interviewing, who who would end up working at Oculus or Valve and working on virtual reality, um, you know, it was not just an awesome, great fiction book, but it was like an inspirational book to want to focus on virtual reality and to believe in the potential of virtual reality. Uh, you know, for Listeners who aren't familiar with the book, first of all, you should read that book. You should read that book before you read my books. It's an awesome book. Um, but, you know, it's, it's set in the year 2044 in a future where, uh, you know, humans live in trailers, but most of their time is spent in, the, in this metaverse, um, in this virtual reality metaverse. And so, you know, I was a fan of virtual of uh, Ready Player One, and, and, and it definitely was a big inspiration towards me writing this book about Oculus and how they attempted to try to resurrect virtual reality. Um, so I, during my early interview, you know, during my interviews, I ended up interviewing hundreds of people over the past four years. Uh, I, I got in touch with Ernie Klein and I asked to just speak with him about his experiences writing the book and his thoughts on virtual reality. Um, and then I had asked him uh, closer to public, you know, I asked him like a year later if he would be interested in writing the forward to the book. And uh, he's a really nice guy and kindly declined because he was busy <laughs> doing the screenplay with Steven Spielberg for the movie. Um, yeah. And, uh, and uh, you know, I understood, of course, you know, busy guy. Um, but then 
uh, I don't want to get into too much of a spoiler alert here, but the main character of this book is a kid named Palmer Lucky, whose life story sort of mirrors the main character in Ready Player One to a decent degree, at least at the beginning. You know, Palmer Lucky back in 2012 was a 19-year-old kid living in a camper trailer. The trailer had been gutted to basically become the ultimate mad scientist laboratory to build virtual reality headsets. And he was trying to uh, start this company called Oculus. And, uh, and then Palmer ends up founding Oculus. Less than two years later, they sell to Facebook for $3 billion. And then about two years after that, Palmer ends up getting fired for reasons that had nothing to do with virtual reality. And I mentioned all this ahead of time because um, Ernie Klein, um, is friendly with Palmer or he, or at least he admires Palmer and is a big supporter of what Palmer did. And after Palmer got fired and after there was a lot of negative press around Palmer, um, I reached out to Ernie Klein again and asked if he would, might reconsider writing my forward because I thought that the book might be facing some backlash because so much of it is about Palmer and he was so unpopular. And my goal with this book was to get the truth out there, uh, which hadn't really been out there. And, uh, and Ernie said yes at that point. Um, he was done with the screenplay. And uh, and I I told this to my wife the other day that you know I'm not a very uh, emotive person I, I tend to take things in stride but when I got that email from Ernest Klein saying he would write my forward I literally jumped up and down I was very excited about that that was a big deal to me yeah that's awesome that's great so what's the uh, the uh, so have you given enough of the premise of the book or is there more to it or would that spoil it if you keep going with it no no I'm happy to keep going with it and and it's, it's interesting that you ask that because. You know, Console Wars was the story that happened 20, 25 years ago. And so when I started writing it, I kind of knew the beginning, middle and end of the story. Um, and then all, and also like a lot of people didn't know about that history or had forgotten about that history. But this was a book that I was writing about current events. And so, um, you know, there's not too many things that would be spoilers to certain portions of the audience who followed the VR industry or who bought an Oculus headset. Um, so it was interesting in that regard. But but I'll, but I'll give a little bit more description of the book just to give a sense of what this story is about compared to console wars. So you've got Palmer Lucky building these headsets and, and, you know, this is 2012. So this was basically a time when virtual reality was considered a technological punchline uh, along the lines of flying cars or, or, um, you know, jetpacks. you know, like it was this thing that we've been talked, that's been talked about in science fiction, but never seemed to happen and always kind of failed. And, uh, and, and, you know, a lot of people ask, like, why, why was Palmer basically the chosen one who was able to build this headset? And most of the answer is because he's a genius. But part of it, too, is just because he was one of only like 100 people in the world who still cared about virtual reality, who was still working on virtual reality. And then, uh, you know, Palmer's big break came in, in what, you know, it's the first chapter of the book. Palmer's working on all this stuff and we kind of get to know him. And then out of the blue, he gets a message from um, John Carmack, the legendary game maker who had founded id Software and made games like Doom and Wolfenstein and Quake and Rage and who was a hero of Palmer's. And John Carmack um, was looking to adapt one of his games into virtual reality. And he was looking for a virtual reality headset, assuming that since, 19, since the 1990s, the technology must have, must have progressed significantly. And then he was disappointed to find that it hadn't. And that compared to what was available in 2012 by companies like Sony or Imagine or Vuzix, that this headset made by a kid living in a trailer in Long Beach was so much better than what those companies were putting out and also so much cheaper. And so that sort of sets the story into motion, this combination of Palmer being a brilliant hardware hacker and John Carmack being the software genius and then them kind of combining forces. And then, uh, you know, Palmer, the... The last thing I'll say before getting too far into the book is just that, you know, there's a lot of excitement about virtual reality starting in June 2012 at the E3 trade show when John Carmack uh, demos Palmer's headset and Palmer is, is offered a few jobs, including the chance to go to Sony and to help work on their virtual reality team. But he ends up passing up that offer, which was very, very hard for him because one, he liked Sony and two, it was a lot of money because he had no money, but he ends up deciding to start his own company in Oculus um, and, and move forward with that. And, and I say all that because um, in the end, you know, I think of this book, it's about a lot of things, but really it is just like, a, like an American dream sort of story and sort of like the ultimate entrepreneurial journey. Um, and so even if listeners are not very familiar with virtual reality or not sure if they're interested in that, 
Um, this really is just like a universal story of a kid who invents something and decides to uh, not not sell out originally and start a company. And then he does end up selling the company or selling out. And it just makes for an interesting story. Yeah, you know, like a lot of people say uh, the, the age of the inventor in their garage is over. And I, I think that's, I don't, I don't think that's true at all. You know, this is an example of that essentially, you know, and yeah, no, I think a really there's still good point. room for people to innovate. And like, I think, like, uh, I hadn't really thought about that. You're right. But people do sort of think that that's like a bygone era. And I think that this book is proof that it's not. And also it's like a, it's a very interesting twist on the typical, you know, garage inventor dream because it is, it does feel very 21st century that, um, you know, Palmer, while he was inventing this stuff in his garage and then later in his trailer, you know, so much of his work he shared publicly on an internet forum called Meant to be Seen 3D, where he was communicating with, uh, you know, the few dozen other virtual reality enthusiasts. So that feels like very modern, that it would be almost like open source and very collaborative. And then um, just the fact that John Carmack found him through the internet um, is kind of like the 2.0 version of the garage startup. Um, and I think that the, you know, that this book, and really the story kind of captures um, the modern day version of the inventor trying to build something and build a company and quote unquote, change the world. So was it a lot easier this time to get people's attention and open doors? It was definitely a lot easier to um, get access. You know, with console wars, as we talked about earlier, uh, people had very good reasons not to want to potentially waste their time talking to me. In this case, fortunately, a lot of the people that I wanted to interview were fans of my book because they're in the game industry or the tech industry. Um, so that was really good. But where it actually was was tougher was that when I was interviewing people for Sega Nintendo story, um, almost all of them no longer worked at Sega or Nintendo. So they were kind of free to talk by their own volition or not talk. But, but in this case, so many of the people still worked at Oculus or Facebook, which acquired Oculus um, or worked at HTC. So there was, it was, there was a, you know, there's a corporate aspect that I had to navigate. And for a while um, that went very well, starting in February of 2016, which was one month before Oculus released their first product, the Oculus Rift, I was given essentially um, unlimited and exclusive access to speak with the founders of the company and the primary players there by Facebook and by Oculus. And that was very interesting at first because their launch um, went very poorly, which they did not expect. So as a writer, there was a lot of, a lot of interesting stuff there. Um, and then it got very, very interesting and, and eventually became a bad situation when they fired Palmer Lucky, the main character and the founder, um, which was of course unexpected to me and unexpected to him but also led to a weird situation with Facebook because mm. they now didn't want the book to focus so much on Palmer. And of course that wasn't their choice, you know, what the book focuses on or what the book doesn't focus on. But, um, and not only did we seem to have different, you know, uh, uh, ideas of what we hope this book would be, but they also actually um, started systematically lying to me about why Palmer was fired um, because it had nothing to do with virtual reality. And, that ended up um, after two years of a pretty healthy relationship with Facebook that ended up ending the relationship. And um, I, you know, I, 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 I won't spoil why, but I think that once you read, you'll understand why Facebook um, was lying to me. Not that that makes it acceptable, but you can understand what they were trying to cover up. I got you. So um, yeah. for people that have read the book or will read the book after this, because they're going to be so excited and they should be. Um, What's some supplementary material that you couldn't put in the book, but that people would like to know? You know, imagine someone's just read it. What what kinds of things would you want, think that they would want to know that you can talk about here? Oh yeah, that's an awesome question. So so I think that one of the really cool things about Oculus and one of the smart business decisions that was um, largely made by Palmer's co-founder Brendan Areeb was that uh, Palmer's original plan was to um, sell his virtual reality headset as a do-it-yourself, like a DIY kit on Kickstarter. Um, and, you know, uh, I don't know about your technical background, but I assume that that would be something that would be above your, your technological skill set, or at least it would be above mine. Uh, you know, I wouldn't know how to solder together yeah. things and build a VR headset. Um, and Brendan convinced Palmer that he should, you know, that, that the headsets he sold should be already assembled and put together so that anyone can use them. But 
they also decided that it shouldn't be for anybody. It shouldn't be for you or I just yet that this headset that they sold on Kickstarter should really just be for, um, for developers, mostly game developers, but also content creators. And the reason for that was because if there was ever, you know, when they finally released the consumer version of the headset, the only reason it would be interesting or valuable to someone like you and I is if there's already games and experiences and content to use. So they decided to target developers and, um, you know, help create this ecosystem. And that was certainly a very wise decision um, to, to help create, um, you know, this excitement around virtual reality, but, but also it created a situation where they were, their main customers were actually developers and their pitch to developers was kind of like, you know, here's your chance to get on the ground floor of a great new technology and you'll be successful when we're successful. And so hundreds of people, um, you know, well, thousands of people bought the headset and then hundreds of them followed through and actually made really cool content, but they ended up mm -hmm. not making any money because nobody really had this headset. <laughs> and I think that just in terms of supplemental stories, like, you know, there's so many great stories about the developers who decided to quit their jobs or to, you know, work after hours to build content for this early virtual reality system that ended up not fitting into the book just because I tried to keep the story primarily focused on Oculus. Um, but, but, you know, I think that what, what, you, what probably appealed to you about console wars and what will probably appeal to you about this book is just what happens when people are driven by passion to create technology. And so there's so many developers who are driven by passion to spend their own money or to quit their jobs or do whatever to make, make these games. And then they ended up not really being the beneficiaries, but, but I think that each of their stories is pretty interesting in their own right. And you know, there's a chapter in the book called Nine Stories where I tell just nine of those stories, but there really are hundreds of them. And uh, you know, I'm, I, I've been talking to some of the other people now and trying to figure out a, a way to get more of those stories out there because they're all very inspiring or sort of cautionary in nature. Um, yeah. And so that is a, a big part of it. And then the other thing too is uh, you know, the Facebook aspect of it. The final third of the book is uh, largely about what happens after you sell your company um, and kind of like no matter what promises are made to you, um, at the end of the day, you've sold your company and you've lost control. And, um, and, and now we're in an interesting place where over the next couple of months, Facebook and Oculus are going to be releasing a headset called the Oculus Quest, which I think um, objectively speaking is going to be the best, most affordable consumer headset ever made. But at the same time, a lot of the people that I've been meeting with at my book signings or talking with over the past few weeks, a lot of people have concerns about about Facebook being involved because they're concerned about what Facebook will do with their data. And so Well it's just uh, like um in um Radio Player One, you know, IOI yes. commercializing <laughs> yeah. the Oasis. I mean this is the exact same thing that uh is happening that I'm sure a lot of you know hardcore gamers and enthusiasts don't like. They don't want their uh exactly. their VR commercialized and showing them ads and doing all that stuff, you know. Exactly. And 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 that's why there was such a big backlash to the Facebook acquisition. It wasn't so much just that Facebook sold out per se. It was that they sold out to a company like IOI or a company that seemed so similar to that. Um, and, and I think that um, those, those concerns are very valid, um, which, which puts uh, VR enthusiasts in an odd spot right now where, you know, as a, as a, as a fan of the technology, I want to buy this headset, but also as someone who's someone who's concerned about um the corporate aspect of it, um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if I want to do so. And, and the other thing I'll mention is that, um, you know, all technologies that we use on an everyday basis, you know, we develop a sort of intimacy with them, like our phones or, um, you know, maybe our laptops. But, but virtual reality is even more intimate than any technology we've ever used because not only is it on our, you know, in front of our eyes, but it actually tracks your eye movements. It actually has cameras that are, you know, sensing what's in the room. So in terms of data collection, um, it's, it's, it's so much more significant than just going on to, you know, Facebook.com and having them keep track of what you're posting or what you're reading. Um, and yeah, so, actually, that's what I was going to say. I, you know, I did a lot of interviews with um, VR creators and one of them, I don't know, you know, it's an obvious thing, but one of them said, you know, with VR, you can record everything, everything you say, everything you look at, everything you do. So in one way, it's, freeing and amazing and immersive and it's another world in another way it could be used as like the ultimate control because things can be put there you know let's say an augmented reality that may not be that you know again no one else would see but literally your perception of reality can be altered 
uh, if that's what someone wants to do. And if it's a yeah, screen I, in front of you and you believe that screen and you have it in front of your eyes all day, you'll just be like, okay, well, that's my reality and you'll believe it. Exactly. And so I think, you know, like a very simple example of that would be, imagine if you and I were having this conversation in a virtual environment right now. That's something that can happen today. That's not that crazy to imagine. And let's say after the show, you were, you were talking about your plans for the weekend and you said, oh, you know, I'm going to go buy a 12 pack of Coca-Cola. And then, you know, I, without saying anything, I happen to smile. And then the sensors decide, oh, that means Blake likes Coca-Cola or he likes, you know, drinking Coca-Cola mm. on the weekends. And then that's information that maybe will go to Coca-Cola or maybe that'll go to Pepsi. And Pepsi has a chance to become, you know, to push Coca-Cola aside because they know I buy soda on the weekends. And just all these little right. things that you probably wouldn't think of, but because all that data is being collected, and, you know, I wouldn't think, oh, I, I didn't even maybe, maybe I didn't even know that I smiled when you said that, but, but the sensors are picking that up. And so it is kind of, um, I think, just a little bit creepy. Um, it's, it's pretty invasive by its nature. And Oh, that's like, nothing. You know, I mean, they can look at pupil dilation. They exactly, possibly yeah. could get heart, heart rate, uh, blood pressure. Yep, yep. I mean, all kinds of stuff. You, know, you wouldn't even know. You would just have a limbic system response, <laughs> and it would pick yep. it up. <laughs> Right. And then, you know, then you throw in other things, too, of like these other, you know, tech companies, um, if they maybe there's I think tech companies in the next few years are probably going to be offering solutions to measure your heart rate more frequently and kind of keep track of your health. And I think that it comes from a, a genuine place of wanting to do good. But that data is also collected that's going to be used, like you're talking about, like for pupil dilation and um, you know, what, what, what things are you saying that are increasing my heart rate? And, and is that because I'm interested in those things because I'm scared of those things? And like, you know, there's, it just really opens this whole Pandora's box. And, yep. and I think that, again, like I genuinely think that most of the people at these tech companies have good intentions, but they're, they're also not even the ones making the decision. You know, they're creating algorithms that, that, that are meant to optimize and to be efficient and optimization and efficiency don't really care about um, the motivation, you know, it'll just track the data and use it for how it believes it's best for whatever agenda that they have. Yeah. No, there's going to be a back and forth. There's going to be tools that block uh, right. the recording <laughs> of certain things. I mean, also too, for copyrights and for all kinds of other stuff, this is what troubles me, you know, um, augmented reality actually troubles me a lot more than virtual reality because augmented, you know, there's, reality there but it's just quote-unquote augmented or altered and that's really where deception can come in that's where you're going to run into uh copyrights and you know oh you can't display right. that to this user and uh, you know i don't know i just that seems to be a lot more problematic than virtual to me right no i actually agree with you because my um thinking here is that when i'm entering a virtual world when i put on a headset i'm sort of you know knowingly going to a place where it's this full experience but when you start mixing that with reality, um, you're, you're, you're tracking all these other people who maybe don't want to be tracked. You have cameras on them. I also, um, mm -hmm. I, I also kind of don't really understand the upside a lot of times. You know, but the examples that I'm told is like, you know, you'll walk past the building and it'll have the information of like, this building was created in 1902. And so oh, it's always good to have more information. But if you were very interested, you could always look that up at home. And it actually takes you out of right. the moment to be giving that information. <laughs> Um, and, and, and this is a very stupid thing, but you know, I wear, I'm a glasses wearer. I, I need them to see, but right now when we're doing this call, I took them off because they're annoying to me. So I don't really know why people are going to want to choose to wear glasses instead of have a cell phone in their hand. I'd much rather carry something than have something on my face, but maybe that's just because I'm used to having glasses all the time and I'm kind of sick of them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I can think like for augmented reality, think of, um, you know, a nightclub, the bouncers would see one thing that other people couldn't see. You know, the owner would see a whole level, a whole other level of stuff. Right. The, you know, the waitress staff, for instance, would see something else. The customers would see other stuff and things could be pushed to them visually, you know, uh, when the club wants to do it. I mean, it's interesting what it creates because you can have a common experience, but the reality of it can literally be different. The perception of it can be very different to people. And that's a bit harder to do right now where, you know, physical things have to be changed in order to do that. But when augmented reality is pervasive, and I hope not, but if everyone's wearing augmented reality glasses, um, it'd be super easy to manipulate people's uh, reality. No, you're totally right. And it's, I think it's important to think about these things because, you know, I think that the 2016 election, regardless of who you voted for, whether you were happy with the outcome, it was a really 
um, sort of eye-opening experience for many to show um, that we all, that so many people seem to live in their own realities and that, that rea those realities are being formed oftentimes by social media, that, you know, we all sort of live in our own echo chambers. And, you know, I'm seeing news that reinforces my own beliefs and I'm seeing from friends mm -hmm. who have those same beliefs. And, and, and people say, you know, you're living in your own reality. And that's sort of, you know, almost like, a, you know, being a little bit tongue in cheek, because obviously, we're just still all embody the same physical world. But imagine once, you know, what you're experiencing online in that digital format, break comes into the real world, and you are just living in an echo chamber, and you do have the bouncer and the club owner and the and the attendees all having different experiences. Um, you know, it, it, I think it robs us of something, and also just makes us less able to communicate with each other because we don't have the same, um, you know, framework of our reality. Yeah, yeah, that was true. And then uh, an earlier point you made, you talked about the enthusiasm of the VR creators and, um, you know, how a lot of them gave so much time and energy and money and they may not have reaped the benefits of it. You know, it reminds me, I've, I've talked to hundreds of companies in the Bitcoin and blockchain space and same thing yeah, for them. Yeah. You know, they, they put all their heart and soul and they had all these amazing ideas. And the whole promise of that, at least for now, you know, in 2019, seems to me to have failed. And it's being picked up by large companies that are stripping away, you know, the tokens and the ICOs and all that stuff. And they're just, right. you know, they're just dealing with the blockchain aspect of it. And VR is far older. And it, it kind of went through that period and then went quiet for years. And now is this resurgence. And now it's really headed towards commercialization or it is so it's funny the the analog of the two but you have the same type of people the dreamers and the enthusiasts and all that that were able on their own to create all kinds of stuff so it just brought that to mind when you mentioned it no i think that's a really good comparison because i think that also helps distill why i wrote this book and what makes <clears throat> what makes oculus special and historically significant because i think that you know Going back to 2012 or even 2013 after Oculus and Kickstarter, you could probably make the comparison to um, cryptocurrencies and, and, and blockchain technology where there's like, okay, it's sort of this hot new thing. People are talking about it. It's really only like super technical enthusiasts who are aware of it, but journalists start writing about it. And, um, you know, whether or not that actually reaches the mainstream or whether or not that actually takes hold is largely... Um, I think about like messaging, like I think that I don't, because maybe because Bitcoin, the founder is unknown, or maybe because um, it's such a, I guess, by design of the crypto nature, it's like, you know, kind of anonymous, you know, there's nobody out there that has really found a way to talk to people like my mom or my dad or my brother about what blockchain technology is or why they should care about mm -hmm. it. And at least that was something that Oculus um, did very well, uh, whether or not they'll be successful, we'll see, but it did, you know, it did come down from beyond this barometer being only for enthusiasts to at least reach people like myself and my family and like, okay, I, I understand virtual reality and how it could benefit me. Um, and, and I think that like, that's a long winded way of saying that the book is called the history of the future. And I think that a lot of times when we think about the future, we almost think about it as this, you know, tangible thing buried in sand and we're digging it out and there it is. But, but, but of course we all know that the future is there's many permutations of what the future could be and which one we go towards just depends on, you know, various events and um, the success of certain people over others. And, um, and, and also a lot of luck, you know, this is a nonfiction book, but I don't think I could have asked for a better name for my main character than Palmer lucky, you know, I know. <laughs> who else to be doing the American dream in 2012 and 2016. Yeah. So um, I think that's a big part of it. You know, it would be great to have a, as part of this conversation is David Sachs to Revenge of the Analog. I don't know if you've spoken to him, but, but you and no, him should have like a long conversation because it, it ties in perfectly to, you know, what's going to happen with VR. And that, that, that leads into what I wanted to ask you. So what insights do you have that you think other people don't have because you've gotten so deep into the, the VR world? Like, do you think it's going to become pervasive and everyone to have goggles stuck to their face and not be in the real world? Or what, what do you think is going to happen? Um, I think that the one thing that a lot of people who haven't, who haven't used VR um, underestimate is how, is how much it actually feels like you're with other people. Um, and this gets to, um, although I have written two books on gaming and although I absolutely love gaming culture and plan to write more, um, you know, I'm not a hardcore gamer myself. 
like you, I'm not the greatest at Fortnite and other first-person shooter games. Um, but my, you know, my interest is uh, is largely about the social component and and how one day we would be having this conversation in VR, sort of as like a next step after Skype or something like that. And um, you know, even nowadays, when when we go into a virtual experience, um, even if it looks like a CGI you know, Pixar sort of environment. So, so computer generated and it's not even supposed to replicate the real world. Like it looks kind of uh, fictional, obviously, um, you know, even just you and I there now, because the headset has so, so much tracking, um, I do get a sense of another person's mannerisms and you really do feel like you're there with someone else. And then um, earlier this week, um, Peter Rubin at, at, at Wired wrote an awesome article about Facebook's plans um, to bring avatars into the virtual space. And, and by avatars, I mean avatars that actually look like us um, and that can be, go beyond the uncanny valley. And so I think that people are underestimating how close we are to having virtual environments that really replicate a lot of what reality is like. And it's not so much, I mean, it still would be technically an escape from our real world, but um, but but I guess if, if it's really if it's realistic scenes or and if it's realistic people, it feels more like a parallel than you know an escape mm. to this computer generated world. Yeah, the closer it gets to reality, um, you know, I guess we run into a couple of issues. One is the uncanny valley. It's it's you know been shown to be right. disturbing to people when something is really close to reality but not quite there, and then exactly that makes it even more likely that a fake will pass itself off. You know, if you have an avatar right. that really manage, matches your mannerisms perfectly. Well, it's not so much of a stretch to tune that avatar a little bit to show the best sides of you and to hide the, the bad stuff. Right. Or and then I wonder, one for instance. Because you were talking about the copyright issues earlier and they are plenty. There's a lot to think about and worry about with augmented reality and VR, especially as you know, a creator myself, I often side with the copyright holders unless it's a big company. But, but like, what about if I decide instead of, you know, trying to trim 20 pounds off of myself and, you know, make myself look a little younger. What if I decide, you know what, I just want to be Brad Pitt. And then I have an avatar that looks like Brad Pitt, you know, like taking his likeness. Right. And that's just how I move about. Is that okay? Is, is he okay with that? And what happens when there's like thousands of us, how do we distinguish ourselves? And, you know, how do, and then how do you distinguish um, me pretending, you know, me choosing to look like Brad Pitt versus an, an, an AI system. Maybe it's a, a troll bot. Like that, you know, how do you distinguish the quote unquote real people from um, algorithms and, and stuff like that? So, it's, you know, yeah. it's a whole can of worms that we get into that is really going to come into play. No, no, it definitely is. Um, what was I going to tell you? Um, I lost it now. Excuse me. <laughs> Sorry. This has been a great uh, conversation, but uh, all of a sudden I lost track of what I was. Damn it. And then I, <laughs> don't I worry. Something really right. good to tell you. Um, Talking about copyright stuff. Just, um, yeah, let me think just for one more second. So, sure. Avatars. Hmm. All right, well, I lost it. It'll come back to me. But um, all right, so I edit that part out. Okay. So what's cool. um? So again, what do you think the future is going to be like? You think that again, everyone's going to be walking around in the virtual world all the time, or do you think there's going to be a large contingent of people that are essentially revenge of the analog type people that uh, you know? I guess they would call them Luddites or people that just don't want to have technology in their lives. And what's that interaction going to be like? You know, you have people walking around right now, like stuck in their phones, bumping into people, literally because they're not looking around. So what right. do you think the, the future holds, you know, 10 years, 20 years? What, what does it look like to you with your insider knowledge now? Um, so I would say that with my insider knowledge combined with the fact that I'm an optimist at heart, um, you know, I don't think that we're headed towards anything that would resemble a dystopia. Like, I think that um, unless you look at the world today and consider it a dystopia, the fact that, every, you know, that so many people are, like you described, like, you know, looking at their phones when they're walking. But I don't think that, you know, people are going to cocoon themselves off in the world so much that they stop interacting. Um, and, and part of that is based on the fact that, you know, a lot of these people that I interviewed for the book, um, like, you know, I have interacted with most of them in virtual reality. I have interacted with mm. all of them via Skype or phone call. And still, even with all that, they always, you know, we, we always prefer to meet in person, you know. So I think that there still yeah. is like something special to actually meeting in person, even though technically I could get the same information by just asking them the questions on the phone or by emailing them. Um, but I think that like the revenge of the analog mentality is something that's 
hardwired into us that there is something special about being a person. And then I think also just that mentality has begun to manifest itself a little bit more over the past few years. And, and not just because of the 2016 election, but I think that over the past few years, because, you know, I think this even, I noted that this changed during the writing of my book. Like, you know, when I first started writing the book, uh, tech companies uh, and, and the, um, you know, tech moguls like Mark Zuckerberg or, um, you know, Larry Page and Sergey at Google. And, you know, I think these people were much more revered than they are now. And now they're under a lot of scrutiny. And I think for good reason, not because they're bad people, but because their companies are so powerful and have so much control over um, how they how we filter our world. And so I think that people, I guess the, the, the long-winded point I'm trying to make is that I have a lot more friends, particularly friends with young children who now set limits on the amount of time that they spend on their phone every day or how much time their kids can spend that they didn't do years ago. So I don't, you know, I think everything is good in moderation. So I don't think we could say, oh, you know, this is all bad or good. But I think that mm. people are at least starting to appreciate um, time away from this stuff and, and, uh, and questioning the impact of this stuff in ways that we weren't seeing years ago. And I think that's a good thing. And I, so I kind of expect five, 10, 20 years from now, um, it's not going to be like um, everyone is staying at home and never leaving the house or everyone is so focused on their augmented reality experience that they're not interacting with others. I think it's probably going to just be much more of a, a boring trajectory, um, but, but a very human one of, you know, using it for things that are convenient and then using it probably more than we need to, but then still, uh, you know, interacting with friends and family in, in real life and enjoying going to the park or throwing the Frisbee in the summer and that kind of stuff. And you jogged my memory, by the way. So um, one thing I was going to say is as I get older, I enjoy physical reality more and more and, and, you know, being stuck in the phone and all that less and less. And I would guess that probably happens with a lot of folks is as they get older, they, you know, they, they have this shift and they like real things more than, um, you know, gaming type stuff. Then the other thing I wanted to right. tell you is, um, you know, I have kids that are, you know, 11, 12, 13, um, and I watch the games they play and I can, I don't know if people are aware of this. If they don't have kids, they probably aren't, but games have become whole ecosystems and worlds like Minecraft. You know, my kids learn stuff in Minecraft. They even took classes that Minecraft had online hosted there. There's hundreds of songs that have been adapted with Minecraft lyrics, like popular songs. Um, right. And these get tens of millions of views. There's Minecraft conventions. There's all the swag that people buy. Um, there's even, it's crazy. There's all these YouTubers that, you know, get all the latest modifications to the game and do walkthroughs and they make a living off of that. And then there's right. even like game theorists, which is, there's this game called Five Nights at Freddy's. It's hilarious. And um, I, I even saw my son watching videos where like people were theorizing about things appearing in the game and what it meant. <laughs> and it, it's, I just couldn't believe how these, these games are now worlds for people. It's, it's just amazing what goes on. I mean, look at like Fortnite. You know that Marshmallow had a con um, a concert in uh, Fortnite. People came and paid to like dance at this virtual concert, and it's just amazing what's going on. I don't know if people are aware of that. No, that's a really good point, and I think that that's part of why I feel optimistic is that for for people who don't have kids playing that stuff, or maybe are, you know aren't even. I think by now most people know the name Minecraft or kind of know what that aesthetic looks like, but but like what you're talking about is how people actually use it and. I think that maybe uh, uh, people who aren't familiar with that assume that that when we talk about how kids or even people our age spend a lot of time gaming, it's almost like this, like the level up sort of gaming, like, you know, got to beat this level, got to get to the next level, um, got to work with um, maybe a co-op and, and beat this other team. And that's certainly part of what gaming is. But a lot of it, too, is just world building and 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 doing the things that we're talking about, like throwing a Frisbee in the park, but doing it in in a digital or virtual environment. And I think that's kind of good because. Um, maybe we would prefer to do that in the real world, but I still think that that is a good human-to-human -human interaction to be, uh, you know, attending a concert in Fortnite um, and, and to know that that is like a part of the experience or that, you know, other people out there are making mods that are, in, that you know, that we're choosing to use and change our experiences. And I, uh, I guess it, to me, I like that collective feel. I like this like, oh, we're all experiencing this together. How can we make this better? How can we make this different? Um, 
and that it's that it is like about world building and spending time elsewhere as opposed to just beating things and and getting to the next level that's not really what a lot of it is about yeah, even when i would you know play games with friends you know like overnight it felt better when they're in the same room even if they're on their own computers you know versus them being like right. you know across the planet it's just you lose the physical I guess it's never going to be separated from this stuff. And the physical is just always this like internal urge that people have this, uh, you know, it comes from nature, this desire to be with other people physically, you know, do physical things. Right. Yeah. So and I think it's a good thing. Well, very good. I like that aspect of humanity. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, very good. So, um, you know, for listeners, I'm going to recommend they pick up console wars and, you know, the, the history of the future. I mean, Console Wars is an awesome book, and if you like anything about gaming and VR and all that, they should definitely pick up your books. And at least I know they're available at Barnes and Noble and Amazon. And um, anything else you want to say to, to listeners? Uh, do you want anyone to reach out to you, or you know, how do they find out more about you and your work? Sure, I'll just put in another plug again for Ernest Cline's Ready Player One. Um, you know, it, like it's just a great novel and, and sort of to answer like the questions we were talking about the 10, last 10, 15 minutes, like what does the future of this look like? One of the things I always loved about Ernest Cline's book was that unlike most futuristic books, to me, it didn't feel like a utopia or a dystopia. It felt like here's kind of a realistic take of what might happen 20 years into the future with virtual reality. Um, and it's just a really fun story. Um, and then um, I, I'm, on, I'm on Twitter at Blake J. Harris NYC. I pretty much answer every question ever. So if you have any questions about the book or comments about the book, or if you hate it or love it and just want to tell me, um, I will almost definitely um, engage with you. And I'm happy to hear and talk things out. So uh, you can reach me at Blake J. Harris NYC on Twitter or on my website, BlakeJHarris.com. There's, you know, excerpts if you're curious about what's in the book or, um, you know, interviews. Um, like I'll add this one up there once this airs. Um, and so, um, yeah feel free to reach out. I'm very easy to get in contact with. That's great, Blake. Thanks for coming. I really appreciate it. It's been a great call. Yeah, this is awesome. I'm so glad we were also able to talk about counselors too. So thanks so much. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Thank you.